0: So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, except none of us in this room were there to witness it. Anybody here like witness creation? Anybody in this room witnessed some sort of a miracle this past week? And I'm not talking about like, man, we had pancakes this morning and I didn't think we had a phrase. Like I'm talking about someone rising from the dead or something coming from nothing this is hard for us as Americans to really grasp the concept of the supernatural because I think in so much of us, like we've been conditioned to believe that only what you see is what is real. So much of our, our textbooks, our science, and even our media has told us that, you know, if, if you can see it, if you can taste it, if you can touch it, if you can hear it, that's what's real. Outside of that, we're not quite sure. The problem with that is Christianity really hangs on the supernatural, <laughs> The the central tenets of what we believe as a church is all about the supernatural. We believe that God did create everything that we see out of nothing. And the very central point of Christianity is that God himself stepped into human existence in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, lived the life we needed to live, died in our place, and rose again from the dead three days later. How do you wrestle with something like that? Now, uh, we, we've been conditioned to assume that the miraculous can't happen and be skeptical about it at best. And a conversation kind of goes like this with a lot of people. Uh, this was recorded by C.S. Lewis with a friend that he had. He said, his friend looked at him and said, miracles, how come? Science has knocked the bottom out of all of that. We know that nature is governed by fixed laws. Now, what's he mean by that? The natural world is governed by natural laws, and outside of those laws, we can't really explain a whole lot. It kind of goes like this. We know gravity, right? You guys know gravity? Like, no matter how much you want to beat gravity, you're not going to beat it today because it's a fixed law. You want to fly, I mean, gravity is going to pull you right back down every time. We know that water freezes at a certain temperature every time, and it boils at a certain temperature every time. I found out on Thursday that when I collide with a fast-running goalie that I'm not looking at, like my knee's going to blow up every time, okay? That's like, that's a fixed law, all right? Uh, so like, I mean, we, we look at this and we think if, if we can explain life within these fixed laws that really can't be touched, then the supernatural is really not possible, And if the supernatural is not possible, God's suspect too. As the uh, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once said uh, in response to the Enlightenment's focus on science and humanism, God is dead and we have killed him. Now, maybe some of you had conversations with people who maybe if, if you grew up in the church and faith was a part of your life, they said, oh, that's fine for you. Go ahead. You can believe that. But that's not for me because I believe in science. You know, I believe faith is more of a crutch for people and science is really what's true. And the argument essentially goes like this. For those of us who really want facts and evidence and rationality, you turn to science. Faith is for people who like to feel and who are not necessarily committed to exploring all the rational evidence in the universe. Uh, You kind of get this image that we're pitting a Harvard physics professor against dear old kooky Aunt Mabel from Backwoods, Tennessee. That's kind of how it's painted in a large part of our culture. Now, out of this, Richard Dawkins, who's been an incredibly uh, prolific uh, speaker, he's been very public, uh, and and very public with his criticism towards anything faith-related, he said this, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. So here's the question I want us to wrestle with today. And again, this is going to look a little different for us. We're used to kind of opening the Word of God together and, and systematically working through a particular topic or a book in the Bible. This is going to be a little bit different today and moving forward as we begin this series, God on Trial. But the question we want to wrestle with today is, does what we know about science disprove the existence of God? But before we tackle this today, and before we move really into this entire series, I wanna clarify three reasons why we're doing this series to begin with. The first is that I think we need to level the playing field between people of faith and people who are skeptical about God. Now, it's my opinion, and this is my journey, but I think we need to level the playing field because there have been a lot of Christians who've not adequately examined the roots of their faith and examined some of the deepest questions out there, maybe for fear of what those questions might reveal. And so we've been content to almost have surface level answers to a lot of things and as opposed to really going a lot deeper than that and so my challenge for those of us who maybe grew up in the faith today is i want you to put your thinking cap on and actually use our mind state to examine evidence at a real level god has said uh, love the lord your god with all your heart and your soul we're good at that but he also said with all your mind and we need to use our minds, okay? So that's my challenge to us. Maybe for those of you who are still exploring faith, you're not sure about this whole God thing, Uh, my challenge to you is to doubt your doubts. Part of the reason why I'm doing this series is that I think you have legitimate questions. I think all of the stuff that maybe you're skeptical about God is totally legitimate, and we need to do you respect Uh, in order to to provide that kind of evidence so that you can adequately wrestle with all of this stuff. So we're going to try our best to do that. So I want to get us to level the playing field so that we can actually look at the evidence with our minds. Now, uh, the value of looking at evidence hit me this week uh, in this way, and maybe parents, you can relate a little bit, okay? I woke up in the middle of the night, pitch black, and, uh, and I woke up with this eerie feeling like I'm not alone in the room okay like now like charity and I obviously we share a bed but it was like someone else is in the room okay now in the pitch black you can't see anything so there's a number of possibilities that start racing through your mind at that point you know you're thinking all right well maybe maybe I'm just scared of the dark which is like kind of childish to admit I I don't know like maybe some of us adults in this room like we're scared of the dark that's a possibility maybe I'm legitimately crazy That could be another possibility but everything outside of me was saying neither of those two are real the last two possibilities are really this there's a ghost or a demon in the house and or there's another human being in the room well at that point like i'm like please let it be option four and not three okay so i I examined the evidence and my evidence was eight inches away from me staring me at the face uh completely black not saying anything I don't know about you guys, but like it's a bad move if you're the oldest in the house to come in quiet and like pitch black, not say anything and just stare at your parents. That's not a good idea. But I had to examine the evidence, right? So I don't want us to be like Chicken Little where an acorn drops from the sky, hits us on the head and we just start screaming, the sky is falling. I want us to examine the evidence, so let's level the playing field. Number two, I want to equip our church family to better reason out their faith. I think God has given us a mind, and the Apostle Peter has also told us that we need to be ready with an answer for the reason for the hope that lies within you. If we're not examining the evidence, we're actually not fulfilling that command. So I want to equip our church family to better reason out their faith. And finally, and this is probably the most important, if God is real— then we have to ask ourselves, what are the implications for my life? We can't be content to just think about God on an intellectual level. We've got to think a little bit deeper. What does this mean for me? All right, guys, you ready? Here we go. Movement one, Uh, what I want to articulate first is that every one of us, whether you come from a faith background or not, we all operate under the assumption of faith. Now, how do I mean by that? Well, what we have to understand first is what science can do and what science can't do, what it was meant for and what it was not meant for. This is how science works, okay? Science observes the natural world and makes conclusions based on what you observe. This is the scientific method. It's, if it's observable and repeatable, then you can kind of come to some conclusions and some hypotheses, and that's where theories come out. But you have to observe the natural world. And what it does is it operates on this assumption that the natural world has a natural cause. Science can't move forward unless it operates with that assumption. As uh, Pastor Tim Keller said, the scientists must always assume there's a natural cause. This is because natural causes are the only kind, only kind, catch that, the only kind its methodology can address. It's another thing to insist that science has proven that there can't be any other kind. This is so fascinating to me. That was a faith perspective. Now, I want to show you a perspective of uh, an atheist, one of the leading evolutionary biologists and paleontologists of the past 100 years, a man by the name of Stephen Jay Gould, and uh, we're going to look at a couple quotes from him as we motor through this today. This is what he admits. Nature just is. In all her complexity and diversity, in all her sublime indifference to our desires. Therefore, we cannot use nature for our moral instruction or for answering any question within the magisterium of religion. To say it for my colleagues and for the umpteenth millionth time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. We neither affirm nor deny it. We simply just can't comment on it as scientists. You catching that science as a methodology is limited in what it can accomplish to say that we can by scientific methodology reason that there is no god beyond what we can observe with our eyes is essentially like looking at the play that shakespeare wrote of romeo and juliet and coming to conclusions about whether or not shakespeare existed or not the play if if, if that's the only thing we're observing It's just limited. It it won't tell us whether or not Shakespeare exists or not. We need to go to a different field at that point. We need to look at history. And to say that science as a comprehensive worldview can tell us everything that there is in life about life's meaning, about morality, about our identity, and our significance, and our origins, it just it simply is not equipped to do that. Now look, this is my journey in this, okay? And as I look at the evidence, this is where I'm at. And some of you are probably going to get pretty mad at me today. I'm okay with that, okay? What I'm doing is presenting you evidence for you to wrestle with on your own. Uh, Richard Lewinton, an evolutionary biologist, once wrote this in a New York book review. And I just thought this was a really telling uh, admission. He's talking about what science can do and what it can't. And really, why so many atheists approach faith and say it's absolutely absurd, This is what he admits. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation for the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we're forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and set of concepts that produces material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive and no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. If you're hearing it correctly, this is what he's saying. It's not actually our scientific exploration that's leading us to conclude there is no God. It's the fact that we've pre-decided before we even looked at the evidence. And so he says, moreover, that materialism is absolute, that's what they've pre-decided, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. You have to understand this. For science to conclude that there is nothing outside of the natural world is a philosophical statement. It's not a scientific statement. They have already pre-decided before they look at the evidence, God does not exist. As philosopher Nicholas Wolsterstaff concluded, the faith which the positivists in science displayed in natural science was not itself arrived at scientifically. It's a faith assumption. It's a faith assumption. Whether you believe in God or not, we all arrive at some of the deepest understandings of life based on some sort of a faith assumption. Now, for those who say that the natural laws are all that exist and that we can't arrive at anything outside of the natural laws again what it it is is it's it's assuming that science can play a a larger role than what it actually can play and C.S. Lewis gave me this really helpful image when I was thinking about this and this is what he said Uh, he said the laws tell you what will happen if nothing interferes with those laws but they can't tell you whether something's going to interfere with it or not so picture this I pull out my wallet, and every single day, I'm going to put $5 in a bucket. After five days, what do the laws of arithmetic tell me I'm going to have? 25, oh man, we got some smart people in the crowd today. You guys are awesome. Man, Christians putting on their thinking cap for once. That's awesome. That's so great. All right, uh, just kidding. I love my Christian friends. All right, so we had a bucket. We put a $5 bill in there for five days. Arithmetic, the laws of arithmetic tell me it's gonna be $25 at the end of those five days, but it can't tell me that someone behind me with a mask is sneaking up behind me and stealing that bucket away. After five days, if that happens, how much do I got? (laughs) You know, if he's a good thief, nothing. So, science can't tell us whether something's going to interfere from the outside or not. It just says, unless something interferes, this is what it's going to tell us. Now, for all those who have already said that there is no God, I mean, we have to understand that it is a predecision, it's a philosophical statement, and it's loaded. It is not neutral, okay? Uh, as New Testament scholar Craig Keener said, to rule out even asking questions about divine activity is not neutral. It's an act of cultural hegemony, homogeny, hegemony. I don't even know, I don't even know. I'm really not that smart, so you, you, can, you can pick my brain afterwards. Anyway, so he, here, here's it, like science like concluding to a point that God does not exist is unprovable. God and his existence is also unprovable. So what we have to do is like, like nobody can go back to the very beginning of time and actually witness it, we can't do that because we're on this side of history, so what we have to do is we have to look at the evidence. Well, what does the evidence say? If all of this is unprovable, then what does the evidence say? Now, here's where I want to dive into the topic of evolution and the Big Bang, and let's look at the evidence for evolution and the Big Bang. These are just the two, co- there's so much that we can look at today, but what do we take a look at? And Go ahead and stop that video for just one second. I'll get back to that in just a second. Um, Evolutionary theory traces all of life from a single-celled organism, which they say gradually mutated into all that we see today over the course of millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And in fact, uh, based on carbon dating and all sorts of other methods to understand how old the earth is, there's estimates that the earth is somewhere between four and five billion years old. And I know a number of us in this room are gonna take issue with the age of the earth and all of that based on what you've explored on your own, but based on scientific exploration, the age of the earth is quite old. Now, uh, what they say based on this evolutionary standpoint is that um, single-celled organisms, incredibly simple organisms, is really what all of life has come out of and probably out of one organism in and of itself. And what would eventually happen if this was true is that single, sparse, single celled organisms would actually go from very simple to very, very, very complex over a very, 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 very long period of time. Here's the problem with that. Yes, we have evidence in the fossil record of very simple life forms that have existed uh, early, 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 early. But out of nowhere, we get this thing called the Cambrian explosion. We're somewhere between 500 and 600 million years. Uh, suddenly, we, in the fossil record, suddenly we see unbelievable amounts of complex life. And we have very small to none transitionary life forms between the simplest of organisms to the most complex that we have. Suddenly, boom, it just existed. In fact, uh, leading paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, again, incredibly smart guy, he says the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips of the nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. That's crazy. Think about that. The complex life forms that we've seen in the fossil record is only at the tips of those trees. Everything in between from the very beginning to that is inference. Inference, meaning they don't have evidence. They can only speculate. So this is wild for me because the implications here are massive. Genesis 1 tells us that when God created the world, he created specific things at specific times in specific ways. And that suddenly, boom, animals came into existence if it's true that the fossil record actually shows us that at one point somewhere between 500 and 600 million years ago bam we've got animals that exist man i think that point's actually closer to god than it does evolutionary processes just operating on their own There's so much more that I want to be able to articulate here, and I know our time is super limited today. Uh, I wish I could tell you about how contradictory the whole evolutionary mindset by itself as an entire worldview is, and if you want to pick my brain about that afterwards, please, let's talk. Let's talk. Uh, But we, we need to get into the Big Bang. So go ahead. You can start playing that video. Uh, oh, this is just an illustration. Again, our, this, is, this is just so cool to me. Um, believe me, like I, my mind has been just like blown this week at the amazingness of who God is, okay? So the, the theory of the Big Bang, something started a very small, super atomic particle that was just so supercharged, uh, beginning all of life and just exploding into being is, I mean, it's the most popular viewpoint today. Most science books will tell you the Big Bang is what started everything. And it's the most scientific thing, and, and for most people, they look at that and they say, "This, this surely is evidence that evolution lies at the beginning of everything. That that's the answer for all that we see in history." Here's the crazy thing about this: Do you know who first proposed the theory of the Big Bang? <laughs> it was a cosmetologist, but also an ordained priest. No joke. Uh, a man by the name of uh, Jorge Lemaitre, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, what he did is he was noticing that energy in the universe was actually expanding away from, from where we were, that something was actually going out, which indicated that it started in a particular place at a particular time. Now, the scientific community when they heard that, this, I'm not making this up, they actually completely rejected that theory because it reeked of religion um, Albert Einstein, when he when he got wind of this, he said, "Your your physics is abominable. This is disgusting, because it's it's way too religious." Now, enter Edwin Hubble. In 1929, uh, at the Mount Wilson Observatory in Southern California, uh, he actually came up with really conclusive evidence that indeed, dozens of galaxies near Earth were rapidly expanding and moving away from us at high speeds and and must have done so at some sort of a cosmic explosion. This is wild, but Albert Einstein actually took a look at all of that evidence and what he did is he completely changed his view uh, and he said this must actually indicate some sort of a higher being who is self-existing, pre-existing before all of this came into, into existence and it could be something like God. Now we read this in the Bible and we see John five twenty-six. it says, for as the father has life in himself, so he is also granted the son, not son meaning S-U-N, that should be S-O-N, to have life in himself, meaning he is uncaused. He is self-existing, he has always existed forever and only an uncaused cause agent can call nothing into everything. Acts 17:25 says this, he himself meaning God gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And Albert Einstein turned from this is abominable to this is what he said, this is crazy. He said, this is the most beautiful and satisfactory explanation of creation creation to which I have ever listened. Now, some atheists in response to all of this have actually been so uneasy with the fact that the Big Bang leads us not away from a creator, but towards a creator that they've, they've actually said, I'm not making this up either. They've actually said, well, maybe it was alien civilizations who created us. Maybe they came from millions of light years away, and they were the ones who brought us into being. It must have been some sort of an intelligent person or civilization that brought us all into being. You know, how else do we explain the fact that we're intelligent beings, we have a moral code, and there's something. In, so it must have been some sort of an intelligent person, but I refuse to believe that it was God. So maybe it was an alternate Alien civilization. Now, at that point, like, we're, we're entering into the realm of the absurd, okay? And infinite regression. Because when you, when you think about that, if it was a civilization that's alien at that point, like, well, how did they come into existence, you know? It's just like, how did they come into existence? How did they come into existence? And, like, you just keep going and going and going and going until you get to this place where, like, it's totally absurd. You have to have something that has always eternally been there. So the evidence for me points to the fact that the Big Bang, maybe some of the evolutionary mechanisms that are in place, maybe is it possible, is it possible that God himself set some of that stuff in motion? Stephen Hawking, you should know him, one of the most brilliant guys, uh, confined to a wheelchair, but brilliant, brilliant, brilliant minds, He said this, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. This is an atheist saying that. He's looking at the evidence and this is what he's concluding. Based on the complexity of the world, uh, this led Alan Rex Sandage, one of the greatest observational cosmologists of all time to actually start venturing into the realm of worship. He said, it's my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. Folks, I think we're drawing the wrong battlefield. For so much of of what we've seen in the conversation between faith and science, faith, the church, and evolution, I think what we've said is that unless you believe 100% in miracles without any science attached to it, then you're a heretic. And on the science field and the atheist field, if if you if you enter God to enter even into a small part of that conversation, you're an idiot. Is it possible that the Almighty, brilliant, wonderful, intelligent, powerful God has shown us the depth of his creativity? by writing into this world a code that we can observe and watch with natural laws fixed in place so that it would declare something about who he is. Is that possible? All right, if science and the account of evolution is not evidence against God, but actually may lead us more towards the existence of an almighty, powerful, intelligent creator, then the question is, what do we do with that? I'm presenting you evidence today but this is what I want you guys to wrestle with. Is it possible that God did this so that we could know him and that he's actually given us the gift of science so that we can explore who he is and know more about who our creator is? And if that's true, is it possible that he actually wants to know you personally, individually? Is it possible that he wants to begin a relationship with you? This is wild, but uh, Alistair McGrath, uh, a theologian, actually said this about uh, some of the wrong battlefields that we draw. He says, the idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian of science. One of the last remaining bastions of atheism survives really only at the popular level. Namely, the myth of atheistic, fact-based science is permanently at war with the faith-based religion. It's much bigger than that. This is wild too, Okay. When we look at the origins of science and how it existed, how it came into being, it all started with Christians. (laughs) Some of you might be like, what? I'm telling you that's exactly how it happened. You're talking about some people who operated with this assumption about the world that God is an intelligible God. And that he made the world because he loves the world and called it good. Every aspect of creation, he called it good. And not only that, he created human beings that he then gave the, the, uh, the command to go take dominion over the world, meaning that we need to explore this and, and try to capture it for ourselves and be able to, you know, to, to, to understand it in a way that we can care for the world and care for people around us. That was the worldview of the Christian. There was not any other worldview at the time that was adequate basis for science to take the roots that it did. And so we see some of the people like Copernicus and Kepler, Galileo, Francis Bacon, who was the father of the scientific induction method back in the year about 1600, all of whom operated with the assumption that God is at the start of all of this. And it was their faith that drove them to science, not away from it. In fact, Francis Collins today, uh, who is head of the Human Genome Project. (laughs) I mean, like, talk about out of my league, okay? Like, the Human Genome Project, what he did when he was on stage with Bill Clinton announcing to the world that now we have information on the human genome, more information about the human person than we've ever had before, he called it the language of God. That that complexity, the fine-tuning, all of the amazing stuff that goes on into the body is so complex that it leads us toward God, not away from him. This is what we read in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says, what may be known about God, this is in Romans chapter one, is plain to them, meaning us, because God has made it known to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen not just because of books being understood by what he's made so that people are without excuse and psalm 19 uh one through two says the heavens declare the glory of god everything that you see if you've ever had that moment where you're outside at night looking at the stars and you think oh my goodness this life is so much bigger than me that's what god did he wrote that into existence so that we would seek him The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. He's speaking to us. They have no speech and they use no words and no sound is heard from them and yet their voice goes into all the world. Their words to the end of the earth. Wow. Have you ever stopped to consider that? Man, if you've ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you know something's bigger than you. You're standing at the edge of the ocean. Like you just feel that sense that life is bigger than me. What am I made for? And we we ask these questions of not just like how many molecules are in the wave that you know crashed, and like how does water actually liquefy and stay together and all that stuff? Like, we don't ask that. The questions we ask are this: Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? <laughs> Those questions are not just scientific questions. It goes far beyond the realm of science at that point because God has written his code into our hearts so that we could seek him. Acts 17 says he's He's made us and put us in places and areas in the world so that we would reach out, seek him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Beyond this, we know that we have a God who loves us and wants us to know him in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Today, we're looking at creation. We're looking at all that exists in the natural world. Next week, we're gonna look at the Bible and what that looks like. Can we trust it? Can we not? Jesus is the one who bridges both of those gaps because what we know about God in his word in the Bible, it actually became real physically in the form of a human being. And this is what John 1 says. In the beginning was the word. The word there is such an important word. It's the Greek word logos, which actually can be translated the reason for life, meaning that is Jesus. In the beginning was the reason for life, Jesus. And he, this reason for life was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. And in him was life, self-existent, always, eternally, present, And that life was the light of humankind. This is crazy to me. There's a lot of people who think that God is just this divine clockmaker that wound up the world and let it go and he's absent, doesn't care about us. Not what this says. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was coming, he came to us, didn't consider eternity away from us something that he wanted to live with. He was in the world, Jesus came to us and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. Which blows my mind that God would make that even possible. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. <laughs> no one has ever seen God. We clarified that at the beginning. We have not been at creation. We didn't witness it. It says, no one has seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is closest relationship with the father has made him known. Is it possible, is it possible that God wrote who he is into the created world, into the natural world, so that we could reach out and know him at a higher level? Is it possible that the digger, the the, the deeper that we dig into these tough questions of life actually leads us more closer to God rather than away from God? Is it possible that the Big Bang and some of these evolutionary mechanisms are things that actually God has used to display the wonder and the magnitude of his glory so that we would reach out and find him? And is it possible that you're here today because God wants to begin a relationship with you? I'm telling you right now, explore it deeper. Because he wants you. He wants to know you. He made you for a purpose. And those questions that you ask deep down in your heart are not illegitimate. God has a fulfillment to all of those questions. And it's found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, my prayer is that uh, as we journey through this in the next couple weeks, exploring your existence, that we would not just wrestle with information, but that we would wrestle with you personally. And that we just get honest with you about this journey. Help us to get honest, God, about our doubts, honest about the things that we don't want to explore because we're afraid of their implications. And I pray in those moments, God, that you would really help us to get honest with you. And maybe there's some in this room that are just not quite sure about you at all. I just pray, God, that you'd give us the courage to be able to speak up and tell you about it because I know you can handle it. I know you've handled it in my life and the questions that I've had of you, why you're doing this and this in my life, why have you let these circumstances come into my life? Why am I suffering the way that I am? Why am I seeing the suffering in this world? And you've been patient, you've been kind, you've been loving and more than anything, you've shown me your heart that even when I was lost and rejected and so far without hope in you, you came and your son, Jesus Christ, so that you could win me back and have a relationship with me forever. God, I pray that that would be true of all of us in this room. So bless this journey that we have in Jesus' name, amen.